Jeremiah 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. And then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, near Gal Sharetzer, Samgar Nebo, Sarsechim, Rabsaris, which is actually a title, near Gal Sarasser, Rabmag, which is another title, uh, Babylonian, so I'm not all that familiar with the names, with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. Shall we pray? Father, we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit tonight upon the families that have lost their loved ones, especially Martha Osegueda's family and uh, the loss of her mother, Soledad, and uh, Fred's family uh, at the loss of his father, Encarnacion. We lift up these families to you tonight. We ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon them. Bless them, Lord God, with your comfort, with your peace, and with your presence. Strengthen them, Lord. Both of these people had long lives, and I know that they uh, came to know who you were and are. Through all of this, and in the midst of their times of struggle. But now, Lord God, we commit them to you. We pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to bring that peace and comfort to those who remain. Tonight we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to teach us, Lord God, to receive the wisdom of your word, to be able to apply all that you have given us in your word to our lives and to the walk that we are supposed to give forth as we go forth in this life. That walk that exudes the presence and the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we will be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that we will be receivers, Lord God, of all that you have for us. And Lord, may we set aside every distraction and hindrance, Lord God, to receive, Lord, the truth that you have for us this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Have you ever wondered about the cushion of time that we are often given? What I mean by that is, for example, deadlines for, uh, for one and, and, and the like, you know, where you have deadlines, there's a cushion of time to finish a project, to turn in work, to pay a fine, or to complete your taxes, which you'll need to do in a few months. Most of us may remember being given an assignment such as a term paper to write in school and, and given, let's say, two, three months to complete it. Some of us, not all, but some of us would probably wait until one week before the paper is due to finally start work on it. Anybody here want to admit that? Well, at least you're honest. That was probably less hands than should have gone up. But I'm sure even scrambling 
that we still got the paper in. Because we knew that if we didn't, the zero for not turning it in would constitute a great percentage of our final grade. Well, with that in mind, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were being put on a very critical deadline. One that would bear tragic consequences should they not heed the warnings. And let me say that warnings were indeed given to them by the prophets, especially by Jeremiah, since we are studying his, his book. But through the reign of five Judean kings, one good king, Josiah, there were still uh, warnings given to the people who were worshiping idols, who were rejecting the love of God and the mercies of God and the law of God. And there was Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. And Jeremiah prophesied to them all. But it was during the reigns of the last four kings, because Josiah was a good king, but the last four kings that he prophesied, uh, he did so by telling them of Judah's chastening and, and eventual captivity for breaking God's covenant, for worshiping idols, and for utter rebellion against and rejection of God's law and God himself. And they didn't seem to take into account the siege that the Babylonians began in the winter of 588 B.C. And it lasted some 30 months until the summer of 586 B.C. And if we only took into consideration just those 30 months, just those 30 months, that was 30 months to get right with God. I mean, the, the Babylonians were at the walls. They were, they were already controlling certain things going on in the whole region. They had already overcome cities on their way to Jerusalem. There were even those who they had already taken captive and sent early on to Babylon. And they just weren't getting it. Here they were at the walls of Jerusalem, 30 months 30 months to heed the warnings given by Jeremiah. But remember that the prophecies began years earlier. 41 years to be nearly exact. 41 years of warning. 41 years of calling the people to repentance unto God. 41 years through five kings. Going all the way back to Jeremiah 3 verse 1 where the, where the prophecy was, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. In other words, you have gone off and, and played uh, the harlot with all of these other gods and all of these other nations and all of these other peoples and yet God says to them return to me you go to chapter 4 and I'm not going to go through every uh, prophecy given but in chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 if you will return O Israel says the Lord return to me and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight then you shall not be moved and you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him they shall glory. 
For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fellow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn, so that no one can quench it, because of the evil of your doings. These were just the preliminary warnings given to Judah and Jerusalem. And as much as Jeremiah sorrowed for Jerusalem and his people, knowing what was to befall them, he was nevertheless vindicated or actually proven correct when Jeremiah's destruction was brought to pass. Just as he had predicted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How many times did they want to kill Jeremiah because he was preaching That if they didn't get right with God, the Babylonians were going to come. The Babylonians were going to destroy the city. The Babylonians were going to take them to Babylon as captives. They were calling him a traitor. They said, we've heard our own prophets and our prophets say, everything's going to be cool. We're going to defeat these people. God loves us. God cares about us. Really? And God said to them, This is going to happen. You're not going to turn. So this is going to happen. Jeremiah, stop praying for them. Jeremiah, you just tell them what I say. Because they won't listen to me. That final conflict began in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign in the tenth month. Consider that the event was so tragic that it was recorded three other times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Three other times we're told about this event. 2 Kings 25 verse 1. I want you to notice how similar each of these verses are. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and all his armies came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall around, against it all around. Jump over to Jeremiah 52, verse 4. It says, Now it came to pass in the ninth year in his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. That was at the beginning of the, the 30 months. But then in Ezekiel 24, verses 1 and 2, it says again, In the ninth year, in the tenth month, On the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. Now when was it? It was at the beginning of the siege. The beginning of the thirty months. And that was just verse one of our text. What is that window for? What is that 30-month window talking about here? How many times do I have to tell you to turn back to me? Even then, they were given an opportunity to repent. But the end of the 30 months was over. And notice in verses 2 and 3, it says, In the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, two and a half years later almost, The city was penetrated. 
And then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate near Gal Shareser, Samgar Nebo, Sarshechim, Rapsaris, again a title. Nergal Saracer, a different one from the first one mentioned, if you're really taking uh, notes. (laughs) But his title was Rabmag, whatever that means. It's a title. It's kind of like a title of certain troops with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. After the 30-month siege, the Babylonians broke through the city wall and they took seats, it tells us. They took seats. Now, the Jewish leaders, in, in the, within the context of, of, of sitting at the, at the gates and at the walls, were there to make judgments, were there to uh, solve problems, were there to uh, kind of uh, work things out for people who would come to them. But now, what is happening here is these are Babylonians that are now taking seats uh, to establish control over the city of Jerusalem and to judge those taken captive. So now there's a whole new leadership here. And there's a whole new uh, way of doing things. The Babylonians were not like the Jewish people. The Babylonians were idol worshippers themselves. The Jewish people became idol worshippers when even though they had one God that they could have worshipped, and if they had worshipped Him and believed in Him and trusted in Him, they wouldn't be in the trouble that they were in. But here's a whole new regime. Here's a whole new bunch of people. And one of the officials that sat in the middle gate was this first Nergal Shareser, the first one that is mentioned, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. He would eventually ascend the throne in Babylon in 560 BC, so a few more years to come. He would actually be the king of Babylon. After the death of Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evil Merodach. That's his name, Evil Merodach. He was probably pretty evil. But uh, another name for him was Amel Marduk. So this was somewhat of a who's who then. In Babylonian leadership being present to take the prize of the Jewish people. The prize of the Jewish people was the city of Jerusalem. The prize of the Jewish people was that was that jewel called Mount Zion that God loved, that God chose, that God had placed to be the the, the very spot where He wanted His people to come and to worship Him forever. And now Babylon was in control. And the time of the Gentiles, we've talked about this before, But the time of the Gentiles, or the times of the Gentiles, had begun on God's prophetic calendar at that very moment, at that very, on that very day, as Ezekiel was told, write down the name of this day. Because on this day, the time of the Gentiles begins. Jesus talked about the times of the Gentiles in Luke 21, verse 24, when he writes, and they, or not writes, but he said, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We are still, folks, still living in the times of the Gentiles. I think I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. 
that uh, 1967, when in the during the six-day war uh, of June of 67, when uh, the Israeli army came into Jerusalem and, and retook the city, many people said, "Well, that now the time of the Gentiles is over." But they were premature in saying that because on the very next day, after they had taken the city of Jerusalem, Moshe Dayan, the, the the leader of the Israeli troops and all gave the city back to the Jordanians, and we've been we've been seeing the trouble that they've had ever since that day. And again, they were attacked in '67. They were attacked in '73, uh, uh, and uh, of course, all along the way, there's always been this the terrorism that goes on against Israel. Uh, by the way, remember this: about seven million people are being surrounded by eighty million people. Or at that time, 3 million people were being surrounded by 80 million people. I think the odds were really on the side of uh, the Arab forces. But uh, God has had his hand upon Israel. I think it's a tremendous miracle to see what God has done to keep them. But that doesn't take away the fact that the city of Jerusalem is still somewhat divided. There is the Jewish quarter and there is the Arab quarter and there is the Armenian quarter and, and uh, one other quarter. So there's all kinds of quarters over there. And four quarters don't usually make a dollar over there. So you have to realize that uh, the city is not the way God intends it to be. But it is the times of the Gentiles still until when? Until Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, comes into that city and takes the throne. Now, you know, there's going to be all kinds of trouble until then. But we'll talk about those times later. And because God's people were not broken before Him, and please understand this, because God's people were not broken before Him, they were broken by men. Because God's people were not broken before Him in humility and in trust, they were broken because of their rebelliousness and their attitude of rebelliousness. They were broken by men. And yet they were warned. How many times? Countless times. Now when that period ends, by the way, when the period, the times of the Gentiles ends... The Messiah will return to rescue His people and fulfill the promises made by the prophets. And that's what affects us in this passage today. That's what affects us in this passage. Because people might be mocking us today and saying that we've been claiming for years that Jesus is coming soon and yet things go on just as they have always gone on. Peter says that this is what people said uh, even before the flood. Uh, and honestly, look at this passage in Second Peter chapter 3 for a moment, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, And saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So that's how far the mockers take this whole thing back. And then they say, then Peter says, for this they will willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that, uh, that then existed perished being flooded with water. So Peter makes reference of all of this going all the way back to the flood. And I can just imagine Noah when Noah was given the uh, command to build this ark. And where he was probably commanded to build the ark, there probably wasn't a whole lot of water. Or at least the seas as we know them today, because things were certainly different before the flood than they were after the flood. And by the way, there's a little bit of an indirect connection to what we're studying in the book of Genesis, uh, at least in, in the book of Second uh, Peter here. The fact remains... Can you imagine a, a, a man building a, a, a humongous ark, which was really a big box, if you take all the dimensions? And he's building this humongous box, and people are coming around saying, what are you doing? I'm building a box. Why? Because God told me to. And if they, you know, if they inquired any further, it was like to say, well, why are you building the box? Well, it's going to rain. A lot. A whole lot. And the ground's going to break up and water's going to come out of the ground too. And I'm sure the reaction is the same way as, as, as the evolutionists today would, would mock us for believing that God created the world in six days. You're crazy. You're idiots. And they would say to Noah, you're an idiot. But he was obedient, wasn't he? And he built the ark. And I'm sure he had an audience. They probably all came and watched him. And laughed at him. And mocked him. Gave him an opportunity to preach righteousness, which the Bible says he did. Until a day... And he goes out and he collects all of the animals as God is leading them to him, putting them into this ark. And they mocked him right up until he put his family inside. And I'm sure they made a lot of jokes about how it was going to smell in there. But nonetheless, he went in and God closed the ark God closed the ark and I'm sure they began to wonder when the raindrops kept falling on their heads and I'm sure that this kind of thing was being done in Jeremiah's day as well when the prophet would say what he said, the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to take this city, destroy this city. They're going to take you captive because you have not turned your heart back to God. They mocked him and they said, Hey, old man, 
You've been saying that for years. 41 years to be nearly exact. And then it happened. So how should we then live? Knowing that the coming of the Lord can happen at any moment. How should we then live? Is this not the question that the apostles and the prophets move us to answer? How should we then live if we know that the Messiah will be here soon? And so with that in mind, we go on. So it was, verse 4, when Zedekiah the king of Judah and all the men of war saw them, that they fled and they went out of the city by night, by way of the king's garden, by the gate, between the two walls. They didn't stand to defend their city. It would have probably been more honorable, more noble. But they were just scared out of their minds and they just left. And they ran. At night, by the gate between the two walls. And he went out by the way of the plain. But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. When they had captured him, they, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. They were going south. When they captured him, they took him north. And then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. That's very significant. He killed their sons before his eyes. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes. And he bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Zedekiah and his family and his staff sought to escape by night but the Babylonians caught up with them and delivered them to Nebuchadnezzar at his headquarters in Riblah some 200 miles north of Jerusalem and it's ironic that Zedekiah fled by night since throughout his whole life he refused to walk in the light which God had given him in his law and in his word Zedekiah fled by night he was forced to run for his life in the dark of night. And Paul reminds us that we are not of the night, nor are we of the darkness. As believers in Jesus Christ, as believers in God, Ephesians 5, verses 6-16, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now take... Note of the things that Paul says in the New Testament. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I don't want that label on any of you. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness. Is that not what we were before we came to Christ? We were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
Take note of those three words. Goodness, righteousness, truth. If you walk in darkness, you're walking a lie. And you're walking in lies. If you're walking in darkness, you're, you're walking with, with bad intentions. Therefore, there's nothing good about it. If you're walking in darkness, you're walking in the wrong way. Therefore, there's no righteousness in you. Do you see the contrast? How clear it is what Paul is saying. You were once darkness, but now you're, you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. I want to know what God wants me to do. I want to know what is acceptable to God because that's what I want to do. Amen? (laughs) You all are looking at me like, well, maybe that's good. Maybe we should be trembling. Because you know that the Scripture tells us that even the demons tremble. Even the demons tremble. We have a church today where so many people don't know what it means to tremble before a holy God. We have a church today, and I speak of the church, the the, the body of Christ today. With so many winds of doctrine out there about one thing or another, about you know wanting to have this kind of uh, this kind of uh, involvement with with entertainment and this kind of involvement to to just make everybody feel good. Listen, listen. We are still before a holy God. God doesn't change in His holiness, does He? Yes, we're thankful that He is still God, who is whole, uh, who is love, a God who is merciful, a God who is gracious. But above all things, the Bible says He is holy, holy, holy. To mention His holiness three times, as it does in Isaiah chapter 6, that should be taken note of by every believer in Jesus Christ. It does not change the fact that God is holy. And this is why Paul writes the way he does, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So we're called to do that. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Awake you who sleep. It's a bad time right now to be taking a nap, I can assure you. It's a bad time to be taking a nap. Because I'm telling you, awake from your sleep. Y'all looking at me again. Funny. I want, I want you to be awake. Why? Because God wants us awake. And arisen from the dead. So that Christ will give us light. See then that you walk circumspectly, carefully in other words, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil, making every opportunity to live for Christ, making every opportunity to know what is acceptable to God, what is acceptable to the Lord, making every opportunity to live our lives in the love of Christ. 
Do you know that Jesus also commented along these same lines? In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, we know John chapter 3, verse 16, don't we? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We should know verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But if we, if we need to know anything, we need to know what He says after that. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned. Now you have to ask a question, what does it mean to believe in Him? What does it mean to believe in Him? He says, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And notice verse 19, and this is the condemnation. Notice, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil, the practice, the continual and habitual practice of evil hates the light. Everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Now, ask yourself, are the things that you're doing, can you bring them to God and say, they are clearly seen by God because they have been done in God. In God. Serious things. Serious issues. These are the issues that we are going to have to learn from what Israel had to go through and what Judah had to go through because of their rebellion against God. So getting back to Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians weren't known for their tenderness. In other words, they weren't nice guys. And so he passed judgment, Nebuchadnezzar. He passed judgment on all of Zedekiah's family. Zedekiah was the king. He was a vassal king. But he went against Nebuchadnezzar. You don't go against the king. You don't go against the, the, the real, true leader in, in this particular case. Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah by the throat. And Zedekiah tried to get away and get the Egyptians involved. And then, you know, so you didn't go against Nebuchadnezzar. So he passed judgment on all of Zedekiah's family and staff, the nobles and the princes, by slaughtering Zedekiah. Now get this, slaughtering Zedekiah's sons, not Zedekiah, because Zedekiah would be taken to Babylon. But he slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes. And then immediately he gouged his eyes out so that the last thing that Zedekiah sees is the murder of his sons. That is heavy. Can you imagine the imprint of that in your mind for the rest of your life? Oh, these Babylonians were cruelly keen. It's how you destroy people from the inside and from the outside. So to say that Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice guy is putting it mildly. He was a vicious man. And then he bound Zedekiah here without his eyes, here with that image of his sons being killed before his eyes. He binds Zedekiah in bronze fetters and chains and he takes him captive to Babylon where he would die. 
By the way, that's prophetic. Because Ezekiel would prophesy in Ezekiel 12 verse 13, I will also spread my net over him and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. He shall not see it, because his eyes were gouged out, though he die there. And he did. The word of God... And that was another prophet, by the way, 100% accurate. Just as Jeremiah was 100% accurate, and Isaiah was 100% accurate, and Daniel was 100% accurate, and Hosea was 100% accurate, and Micah, and Joel, and Obadiah, and Nahum, Habakkuk, and all the rest. If there are any left, Malachi. hundred percent accurate about a month later and you can learn of this in second kings 25 verse 8 about a month later the decision was made to totally destroy jerusalem so about a month after they have already come and penetrated the city now they choose to destroy the city of jerusalem completely and notice verses 8 through 10 of our text it says and the chaldeans burned the king's house the houses of the people with fire. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. All the warnings that have been given by the prophet Jeremiah about Judah and Jerusalem and what the Babylonians would do to the city had certainly and decisively come to pass. Certainly and decisively come to pass. The palace and the houses were burned down to show their power and their strength over their enemy, bringing great humiliation upon them. This was all done to humiliate the Jewish people. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down to leave the city defenseless. Both the people who had remained in the city and the defectors themselves were carried away captive to Babylon. There were defectors that had gone already over to the Babylonians and said, Hey, we'll go with you. They didn't want to fight. Just keep me alive and we'll go do whatever you want us to do in Babylon. So here's a reminder. A reminder for all of us. To never let our guard down. Never let our guard down. You see, the walls came down and the city's exposed to every kind of attack from every kind of enemy. We're not to let our guard down. We're not to let that particular wall of protection down in our lives. The wall of prayer the wall of devotion, the wall of scripture reading. In other words, the wall of knowing God's word. These walls of defense, the armor of God, Jesus Christ being honored and glorified in our lives, all that comes down, we are subject to every kind of attack. 
First Peter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's not going to be able to devour anybody who is in God's Word, anybody who is, is truly desiring to serve the Lord with all of his heart, one who is willing to just be filled with the Holy Spirit, one who is willing to bear on him the whole armor of God, the complete armor of God from the, from the uh, helmet of salvation down to the feet of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. The enemy may, might try to attack. He knows it's going to be futile because we are going to stand for Christ. But the minute you begin to lay all of these other things down, he's going to devour Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1-6. through 6. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Here again, we're getting that picture of the, of, of the distinction between living in darkness and living in light. You, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day shall overtake you as a thief. The day of the Lord will not overtake us as a thief. Why? Because we are of the day and not of the night. And he goes on to say that. For when they, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that the day shall overtake you as a thief. Verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. How clear that is. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The sleeping part is being asleep during the day. And I don't mean the physical part of sleep. I'm talking about being asleep spiritually. Because he's talking about living spiritually. That is what it means to live in the light. We are living spiritually in the light of God and in the light of Christ. But if we fall asleep spiritually, guess what? We are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. But let us watch and be sober. Watch and be sober. Watch and be sober. I didn't put this down, but 1 Peter 4, 7 says, uh, Peter says, be serious and watchful in your prayers, because the end of all things is at hand. Actually, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Get the context right there. The end of all things is at hand. I mean, Peter could have written that yesterday. We've had it in our Bibles all this time. The end of all things is at their hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Folks, the enemy does his best work when we let our guard down. He does his best work when we take sin lightly. He does his best work when we take sin lightly, no matter what that might be. He does his, he does his most damage. When we take a vacation from being vigilant. He does his most damage when we take a vacation from being vigilant and watching out. Getting back to our text. There were those whom the Babylonians kept in the land. They didn't take everybody in other words. But notice who they kept in the land. They kept the poor people in the land. Now, that, that kind of is not just a description of the people who don't have anything, even though it says they had nothing. 
The poor people also included the sick people. Because if you were sick, you were poor. And included the elderly that weren't taken care of by anyone. So that, that's kind of the description of who was left in the land. But you know what? This was an interesting strategy by the Babylonians. It was an interesting strategy because the poor, along with the sick and the elderly, more than likely, they were left behind and given the land to grow food on. So this way the land would not be overrun by wild animals, number one. But also, in the giving of vineyards and fields to these people, the soldiers who remained stationed in the land would have food to eat and wine to drink. And these new landowners, the poor people, who now had something that they could say was their own, they'd be very grateful to Babylon. You see the strategy here? They'd be very grateful to Babylon for their prosperity, because they never had anything, now they have something. So, because of that, they're unlikely to rebel. They're not going to rebel. They gave me this land. Thanks. And so they're not going to rebel because at their age, they were unable to anyway. And Babylon, now here's the, here's the crown of their strategy, and Babylon would receive income in the form of taxation on the produce of the land. Because Babylon, like most corrupt societies, loved to give taxes. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Now kings, now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, verse 11, gave charge concerning Jeremiah. Now remember, Jeremiah had been kept in prison by his own people. To some extent, uh, you know, he was, well, to the only extent, by God's grace, he was still alive. They wanted him dead. So now it says, King of, uh, King of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, gave the charge concerning Jer- Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him. Isn't that interesting. Take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. In other words, whatever he wants, you give him. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent Nebuchadnezzar, Rapsaris, that's his title, Nergal Sharazer, Rabbag, that's his title, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. And then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison. Remember that he was taken back to the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. Gedaliah, by the way, would be uh, the, the, the governor of that area that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had appointed. Uh, as I'll say in just a moment, it's not the Gedaliah that wanted to kill Jeremiah earlier, because that was a, he had a different father, so it's a different person. Anyway, remember that the Lord had promised Jeremiah that he would survive all the opposition and all the persecution against him? That goes all the way back to chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, it says, Therefore prepare yourself and arise, and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city, 
and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So that was the initial promise given to uh, Jeremiah. Fifteen chapters later, in Jeremiah 15, verse 20, Again, it says, I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Do you know why? One of the reasons why is because Jeremiah was faithful as a prophet. He was faithful to the Lord. He remained faithful and obedient to God. So the Lord then moved upon Nebuchadnezzar to release the prophet and to treat him with kindness. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may have known also that about the words that Jeremiah gave to his people, taking notice of of those words, how Jeremiah was encouraging his people to surrender. Now, remember that he's only telling them to do that so that they will live. And so Nebuchadnezzar saw Jeremiah not as a threat, but as some kind of a benefit to him. In any case, Jeremiah was committed to Gedaliah, uh, who was later named governor of the land. And again, this is not the same Gedaliah from the previous chapter that wanted to kill uh, Jeremiah. So it's a different one. And and now this chapter ends kind of interestingly uh, about... uh, uh, the blessing that comes upon that Ethiopian we talked about last time too, uh, Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian. Verse 15, Meanwhile the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison. So this takes us back a few days or weeks or months maybe. And uh, it says that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah. Verse 16, Go and speak to Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good. And they shall be performed in, the day, in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you. And you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you. Because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. Now, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage here. Because while Jeremiah had waited for the city to fall, God gave him this message for Ebed-Melech. Uh, the Cushite or, or the, the uh, Ethiopian uh, from back in chapter 38 verses 7 to 13. Now God's words against Jer- uh, Jerusalem would be fulfilled before Ebed-Melech's eyes. God promised that when Jerusalem fell he would rescue Ebed-Melech so that he would not be executed with all the other officials as we've already read in, in verse 6. Uh, would, we'll see it in, in chapter 52 verse 10 and then uh, verses 24 to 27 as well. So Ebed-Melech would escape because he had demonstrated his trust in God by helping Jeremiah. So, for you to understand this best, just as Rahab was spared back in the, the book of Joshua, just as Rahab was spared when Jericho fell because she had assisted God's people, so Ebed-Melech would be spared when Jerusalem fell because he assisted God's prophet. So this was a blessing that came upon this this Ethiopian. And it reminds us of 
Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And this is certainly a, a wonderful uh, example of that particular verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, in Warren Wiersbe's commentary on Jeremiah, he quotes G. Campbell Morgan, a, 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 a preacher, an English preacher from the late 19th, early 20th century, actually through much of the 20th century. But uh, he, he quotes uh, from G. Campbell Morgan's own commentary on this particular chapter. So one commentator commenting on another commentator's comments. But uh, this is what he says, and I think it's a beautiful way. Uh, Wiersbe says, I close with a solemn word from G. Campbell Morgan. And I quote, We in our security need to be reminded that for us also there may come the eleventh year. Remember, the eleventh year was when Babylon penetrated Jerusalem. So he says, we in our security need to be reminded that for us also there may come the eleventh year and the fourth month and the tenth day of the month when God will hurt us from our place of privilege. I'm sorry, hurl us. Hurl us from our place of privilege as he surely will unless we are true to him. We, are, we in our security need to be reminded that for us also there may come the eleventh year, the fourth month, and the tenth day of the month when God will hurl us from our place of privilege as He surely will unless we are true to Him. Be true to God. Jeremiah and Ebed Melech, as we close this particular chapter, are representative of those who are faithful to the Lord and to whom the Lord is faithful in return. Zedekiah represents faithlessness. He's the contrast here. Zedekiah represents faithlessness and the inability to act in courage when pressures mount, much like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.15. Not hot or cold, but lukewarm. And do you remember what Jesus says of the church in Laodicea? He says, you are blind and naked. Blind. What does that remind you of? Zedekiah. He was blind to the light of God's word. And he ends up blind with the image of his sons murdered in his his mind. And in his heart, I'm sure. So, my hope and prayer for each and every one of us, may we never be lukewarm and blind like Zedekiah. You see, this is why every page of the Bible, why every page of the Scriptures is important. We might think it's just, you know, another page of history, another page of Jewish history, another page of, of Jewish missteps and, and, and uh, Ju- you know, Israel and Judah doing all kinds of weird stuff with God. It's about us, too. It's about us. 
So we study this so that we can see where we are with God, where we are with Jesus. And as the men are going to learn uh, this coming Saturday in, in Alamo Gordo, you know, which man are you? Are you Samson? Saul? Or are you like David? Or Daniel? But which person are you tonight? Are you Jeremiah? Or are you Zedekiah? I hope and pray we're like Zedekiah. Hope and pray that we're like those who stay faithful and walk faithfully in the love of Christ and in the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray?